Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can the law still do justice in America? Preet Bharara was a United States attorney who successfully prosecuted some of the biggest crimes in America involving Wall Street, organized crime, civil rights and terrorism, as well as high-profile corruption cases against both Republican and Democratic politicians. His work made the front pages with headlines like, This man is busting Wall Street. President Trump personally requested he stay beyond the usual term at the Southern District, and then he abruptly fired him. Preet has written a book called Doing Justice, a prosecutor's thoughts on crime and punishment and the rule of law. And he is no stranger to podcasts. He hosts his own. Stay tuned to his and ours. Preet, you were appointed in 2009 by President Obama amidst the wreckage of the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. What was the atmosphere like then? Well, the atmosphere in the country was one of... uh concern uh, and frustration because a lot of bad things happened. A lot of people engaged in greedy conduct um, and not fully honest conduct, uh, negligent conduct, reckless conduct. And so there was a view on the part of, I think, lots of people, uh, both regulators and policymakers in the White House and elsewhere, that obviously we had to change course. Uh, You know, there's a lot of momentum for certain kinds of regulatory reforms and various prosecutors' offices... uh, you know, worked for a period of time very intensely to see if anybody could be held criminally liable. And if that's where your question is going next, uh, you know, sometimes that's not possible given the limitations of the law and the limitations of the facts as they become known to you without having certain kinds of direct evidence of the mental state of the leaders of financial institutions. And so, you know, the, the, the frustration that a lot of people had about lack of criminal accountability on the part of folks who were involved in some way in the financial crisis was palpable and is understandable, but the law, you know, has its limits. And do you believe in Warren Buffett's ringing phrase, it's only when the tide goes out that you learn who's been swimming naked? I think that puzzles some people because they might think that the law or prosecutors should be swimming underwater to find out before the tide goes out. Well, they do in, in many instances. I mean, we, we uncovered and prosecuted many, many, many crimes while they were happening, not many years later. And there were some things that were missed by prosecutors and regulators in the country and some things you get at, you know, right at their happening. But you have to also bear in mind that if, when you're talking about an open and free society that is not a quote-unquote police state and you don't have surveillance into people's homes without violating constitutional principles and individual rights – that some amount of bad conduct is going to go unpunished until there's a you know a cause and basis for there to be scrutiny upon them, and sometimes that happens late in the game, and sometimes you know Paul Manafort, for example, the president's campaign chief, who has just you know very famously gone through a trial, tried to cooperate, 
ended up pleading guilty to a second case. He was committing his crimes for years. And some people can say, well, that's a failure, and perhaps it was. But only when he came within the crosshairs because there was scrutiny in connection with things that happened uh, relating to the Russians' interference in the 2016 election in America did a lot of those resources get brought to bear. So if we look at something like the Bernie Madoff case and now you know, films have been, books have been written about it galore, what do you take away from that? Do you then say, well, look, there was very little that the law could do until everything was revealed? Were, or yeah. do, you, do you think that there would have been points earlier when an intervention could have come? Yeah, there might have been. You know, I, there's blame in a lot of quarters for massive, significant crimes that happen over time. Whether you're talking about Bernie Madoff's you know, history-making Ponzi scheme fraud, or you're talking about the scandals at a university in, uh, in the United States, Penn State, or you're talking about the, the, the sex abuse scandals in the church. And sure, um, there is some measure of, of I think, uh, responsibility on the part of prosecutors but, you know, prosecutors can only pursue things that someone decides to tell them about. And I often said when I spoke to business leaders and business students and people who were captains of industry, not the lawyers, but the people who are actually running businesses and, and institutions and heading them up, was that, you know, all the big cases that you read about that my office brought uh, that were massive frauds uh, or massive amounts of misconduct, there were people who knew about them. And there are people who could have sounded the alarm bell. And sometimes they didn't, and sometimes they did, and other people didn't pay attention. And what's really important for those kinds of scandals, including the Madoff scandal, is for people who have deep suspicions or see red flags, wave them and say something about them and come to the authorities. And you have so much complicity. Well, you, you, you were talking about the gymnastics scandal mm -hmm. um, with the coach who was abusing so many young, young girls. You know, or you're talking about a lot of the examples of the Me Too movement sweeping America and other places, that they were, they were, I'm not talking about the victims here. I'm talking about other responsible people who were close to the perpetrators who sort of let it happen, you know, whether that's Harvey Weinstein or anyone else. So your point being, I think you, you mentioned it in the, the book, that people bring justice, the law doesn't. Well, the law is important, it's necessary, but not sufficient. So as has famously been said, you know, we are a nation of laws, not men. And that's important because you need to have you know, well-crafted laws that are of equal application to everybody and not just justice based on individual human beings' whims. But my, my counter to that is, and it's not my counter, it's the counter of, you know, significant responsible leaders and jurists throughout history, is that just having a finely crafted law doesn't guarantee justice any more than, you know, a good recipe guarantees a first-class, world-class meal. The people who are responsible That's for interpreting for sure. the law and and enforcing the law and deciding which laws maybe they don't enforce and which, how they apply their discretion makes all the difference in the world. So give me examples. And we could range across your career, all those cases against hedge fund managers across both sides of, of the aisle. You've gone after, you know, anywhere where you, you didn't seem to have any sort of concerns about political bias there. You've got <laughs> the Democratic Speaker of the Assembly, the Republican Senate Majority Leader. Been, I was banned from Russia by Vladimir Putin for a case that my office brought against noted arms dealer Victor Boot. I'm not very welcome in Turkey because of a case we brought against a Turkish citizen uh, who was close to the administration of uh, President Erdogan. So yeah, we made, we made a lot of enemies 
in a lot of places just doing our job. Yeah, your holiday destinations are definitely constrained. <laughs> right? uh, but my, my what I was going to ask you was, like, give me a couple of standout moments. One which, you know, what are the jaw-dropping moments that made you think, yes, you know, this is what I came into this job to do. And one of the ones where you felt something was inadequate in the system, in the law, or in the practice of it. Well, there's there's so many of them. And I'll, I'll pick one that maybe is unexpected. And I tell a lot of stories in this book about the unsung heroes of the Southern District of New York, where I led the place for seven and a half years. And that is much in the news because that's the office that's now overseeing the prosecution of the president's former personal lawyer, Michael Cohen. And people think about prosecutor's office as an institution whose job it is to you know, convict people of crimes and send them to prison. Um, we don't put it that way. We say that your job is to do justice and do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons every day and only that. And a consequence of that, if you do it correctly, uh, given the, the world we live in, is that some people are separated from their liberty for periods of time. But sometimes it's the case that the right thing to do is to exonerate people. And so I tell in an early chapter of the book a, a story that inspired me so much then and continues to inspire me and hopefully will inspire other people where someone who had been incarcerated for a murder he had not committed uh, falsely incarcerated and, and and erroneously convicted 17 years earlier he sends a plaintive letter that makes its way uh, to an old Irish cop in my office, so an investigator John O'Malley and he sees this letter and for various reasons because he's got photographic memory and he's very responsible and conscientious the crime that's described in the letter that this person, Eric Glisson, had been convicted of sounded an awful lot like a crime that John O'Malley had heard the confessions about from two other people some years earlier. So it jogged his memory, and he, he thought to himself, well, maybe there's some merit to this letter. And to make a long story short, he undertook on his own, sort of not even part of his responsibility, it wasn't part of his caseload, to reinvestigate it, go back to interview the first people who he thought confessed to it, went to, to prison to see this person, Eric, who'd written the letter, said, I believe in you, and then worked really hard along with uh, the chief of my um, violent crimes unit, Margaret Garnett, to get them out of prison. And six people in total were, were brought out of prison. And it let me say, in a way that was not just lip service, that you know prosecutors might say, you know, this is proof that you work just as hard to exonerate the innocent as you do to convict the guilty. And that's a moment to me that's jaw-dropping because it involves someone going you know, a bit above and beyond the call of duty because that person had been convicted at a trial, had been represented by a lawyer, his appeals had been um, rejected, and still ultimately many years later justice was done. But what about the, the failures to prosecute any big Wall Street executives uh, around the financial crisis on, on your watch, on everybody's watch? The, the frustration is real. The frustration is understandable. People who had responsibility in their job description to hold people accountable criminally or even civilly, which didn't happen either, uh, also had a personal incentive because they suffered in the financial crisis too. But as I said, you know, the, sometimes the law does not permit bringing a criminal case, and that can be frustrating. Uh, it also does not necessarily mean it was injustice in the criminal sense. So you, you don't think anyone? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying I, I don't. I don't. Know, no, I don't know all the. No, I'm not saying that at all. I, you know, I'm very clear about this. Some people committed crimes, perhaps. Some people came up to the line of committing crimes. With respect to people who committed crimes, the evidence was not there. And by the way, not just my office. And the suggestion on the part of some people that there was some, you know, cabal among literally hundreds or thousands of FBI agents, IRS agents, Securities and Exchange Commission officials, federal prosecutors, local prosecutors, state attorney general's offices, all of whom had incredible 
for good or ill, incredible incentive to bring such a case. You know, such a person would have been the, the object of hero worship. Lionized. For all time, right? So a lot of time was spent. And it seems to me that, that what it tells you, uh, given that lots of cases went to a lot of different offices, is that the circumstances were such, the law is such, and the facts were such, that no career team of people recommended such a charge against a high-ranking financial institution official. So, because I watch a lot of legal drama, I'm convinced, and you're smiling already, because you know it's all true, um, I'm convinced that you go to bed and you lie there worrying about or regretting the ones that got away. Do you? I don't. Because if you do that, then I think you're not thinking about the job the right way. Um, I suppose there could be people that that you think are uh, are capable of great harm and uh, violence against whom you have a lot of evidence, but then something goes wrong and you can't prosecute them because a witness changes his or her testimony or dies. I don't remember cases like that. There are cases where you spend a lot of time and energy. You have a belief that the person committed a crime and you know, at the end of the day, you can't make the case, but that's how the system. That's how the that system. That was something is. like SAC Capital. Well, I'm not naming code. any any names, but yeah, but there, there are lots of people that were pursued, and that always happens. But I think it's actually a testament to the system, especially in this time, right, when everybody thinks that the job of the special counsel was to get the president, or the job of SDNY is to get the president. Um, it's not the job. It was never my job to get anyone, whether it's Steve Cohen, or a governor, or a mayor, or another political figure. The job is to do the best you can investigating, getting the truth, getting the facts, applying the facts to the law, the law of the facts, and see if justice is done by bringing the case. And restraint, by the way, that, that depending on people's political preferences or other you know biases, uh, people lament. But restraint is a feature of justice. Restraint is a feature of discretion. Restraint is something that allows people to live free in a country, uh, in any country, UK, United States, or, or anywhere else, where they know that they're not going to be railroaded into a conviction because there's a lot of angry people, that it has to be based on facts and law and on prosecutors who are both aggressive and restrained. Do you think that these stories, when they're this big, do they really work as deterrence? Or to what extent, in the many theories of law, is deterrence what you're after anyway? Yeah, deterrence is a very important feature of criminal law enforcement. And it depends on the people and it depends on the circumstances. Some people are able to be deterred, some are not. I used to have, or still have this view, that the kind of crimes that can be deterred are a certain kind of white-collar crime, because those occur often at the hands of people who are privileged, who have experience, who have education, who are intelligent, but then otherwise become corrupt in some way. And they're not committing their crimes because they're poor or because they've had bad upbringing or they had, they had no other life. And I figure, you know, those people you know, whether it's uh, fraudsters, Ponzi schemers, or insider trading defendants, that, that maybe they are capable of a cost-benefit analysis. And when they see three of their colleagues, uh, you know, taken away to prison, they think the next time they're at a crossroads, maybe I shouldn't do that thing. That doesn't always work. And there are people who just commit crime and fraud because that's their nature. But, but I think there is room for that. The other place where I think there's a tremendous amount of deterrence is through corporate culture when you're bringing you know, certain kinds of groundbreaking prosecutions. So you may remember a few years ago, my office brought a, a certain kind of case against Toyota, the automaker, and also GM, General Motors, the automaker, because there had been a, a spate of accidents by both car manufacturers 
and they had not done the right job in reporting the safety problems to the Department of Transportation in the United States. With respect to both of those companies, we did an investigation, installed a monitor uh, to oversee uh, lots of things at those companies, uh, over a billion dollars in fines from them. And if you talk to anybody in the automotive industry, they will tell you that, that all the other car manufacturers decided uh, you know, very concretely to do things to avoid being in the position of GM and Toyota, and that car safety in America improved because of the cases that we brought. I couldn't help thinking when you talked about the difference between white-collar crime and other sorts. If you were to commit a crime, what kind of crime do you think you'd be tempted <laughs> to commit? Um, that is that is a hard question because I don't think of myself as a criminal and I wouldn't commit a crime. I'll tell you what it would be. It would be um, using profanity on live family television. How about that? No, is that, is that sorry, small I'm enough sorry, to that concede? Is, that is like that is smaller <laughs> fry. I was going to say you're either you're just so I don't virtuous have, I don't that have, you've I, never been tempted to commit a crime, I, even if you could get away with it. Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you. This is, you have a recording device. You <laughs> <laughs> see, you've done this before. Um, but that one of the contexts of your book and whether the law and justice is still done in America is a sense, a nagging sense in the background, often politically motivated, but there are a lot of people's minds either way, that in America at the moment there are issues about whether the law is adequate to many situations. And in, it's in the political fray, of course, uh, in the world around Donald Trump. Does Donald Trump being there make a difference? Yeah, I think Donald Trump, like the leader of any nation, uh, has an effect on how people think about government. It has an effect on how people think about uh, all the things that he criticizes. So when he calls, you know, essentially all mainstream media fake news, and he said things like that, not just picking out particular people he doesn't like, or when he says, uh, you know, things about immigrants from certain countries, not just illegal immigration, but has suggested in passing that there are some countries typically where there are people who are brown are not as good, uh, in, you know, that we shouldn't have as much immigration from those countries compared to countries like Norway, when most people, where most people are white. And the way he talks about racial difference and the way he talks about whether we should change the libel laws uh, and the way he denigrates the intelligence community and trusts Vladimir Putin's conclusions more than... Okay, but that, that's a charge yeah. sheet, but that could be a political charge sheet. But, but that I could think, just be your, your no, view but, of Trump, but what no, but, difference but, but does I, it make to the law? I don't know if it makes a difference to the law, but you know what it does? And an important issue I talk about, it, it, it makes a difference to people's perception of the institutions of law enforcement and the institutions of law. And obviously, those institutions have to earn that respect. And you know, sometimes institutions hurt themselves. The Supreme Court of the United States, in, the, in a lot of people's minds, hurt themselves when they decided the presidential election for George W. Bush in 2000. Those are self-inflicted wounds. But for democracy to work well, institutions... Uh, are you seriously questioning the decision then? I'm saying a lot of people thought that it was a political decision. And when, you know, when, when the late Justice Scalia said, get over it, that that it was not a good decision. Lots and lots of people think it was not a good decision. Absolutely, and and, look, and it's also shown to be true based on the premise of your question. You know what happens to people's faith, whether you like it or not, whether it's correct or not. The people's confidence in the Supreme Court plummeted after the Bush v. Gore decision um, that put George W. Bush in, in the White House. That wasn't because of some president doing something, but it doesn't help when you have a president saying about institutions that already sometimes have, you know, trouble 
in, in inculcating faith in the public based on nothing, yeah, it doesn't help. You know, the, people, if there's a good basis not to believe in and trust the intelligence community, that's one thing. And look, and there have been failures there too. And the president, you know, invokes them all the time, you know, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. But it is not helpful to people's understanding and faith of institutions when it is done, as it seems to be, for political reasons and pure partisan and self-interested reasons. You were initially kept on, or you, Donald Trump obviously sort of wanted you to extend your time at, um, at the Southern District, and yet he fired you. And did you ever really know why? No. I mean, it could have been something, his, totally his right to do it. I make that clear every time I talk about this. He maybe just decided, you know what, it was a mistake to have someone appointed by a prior president. Uh, maybe I want to install someone who will be loyal to me in the same way that he discussed loyalty with, with Jim Comey. Maybe um, it was someone else's decision. He went along with it. Uh, maybe it was because when he called me, and we don't have time to get into this, but he, he called me uh, on March 9th of 2017 and I refused to return the call. Maybe that made him angry. Uh, and he decided to get rid of Why all Why did you the, not return the call? Because I didn't think it was appropriate to talk to a sitting president with, with, with whom I had no prior relationship when the Department of Justice guidelines that make uh, it clear that you have to be very careful about that. It was not set up through the attorney general. And it would look later, potentially, not just bad for me, but bad for the president, that we were having some side conversation while there were swirling requests for various kinds of investigations of the president and his businesses and foundation that no good could come of that. And... I fully expected that I would learn the nature of the call and the reason for the call, maybe if it was appropriate. It could have been done with an interlocutor like the Attorney General. Uh, instead, 22 hours later, I was asked to resign. The Mueller report, uh, we haven't seen it in its entirety yet, uh, but we, we know the, the headline story of it. And to many people, it seems to... It's a, it's a disappointment if they felt that the Mueller report was going to be the instrument that might bring around the end of Trump. Do you think it was an undercooked dish? <laughs> it's a very British way of asking a question. Uh, is, it under, is it an undercooked dish? You know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen the report. But I do think that the, the first part of your question uh, suggests to me that a lot of people's orientation has been wrong. It's understandable. There are people who don't like the president. They think he's awful. They don't want to wait till the election to turn him out of office. And so if you could have, you know, the deus ex machina come from the heavens in the form of either the invocation of the 25th Amendment here uh, or in the form of, uh, you know, the crusader that they thought he was, Bob Mueller, well, then so be it. And not to be delivered from this presidency through Bob Mueller is deeply disappointing for some people, but that's not the right way to think about what Bob Mueller's job was. Bob Mueller's job was not to rid America of the presidency of Donald Trump. His job was to look into interference in the election in 2016, see who, if anyone, conspired with Russians to do it, and then related matters that arose from that, including obstruction, and his conclusions are his conclusions. Uh, people are dis I think people have more of a basis to be disappointed in his failure to render a decision on the criminality with respect to obstruction and leaving that to others, in my view, probably leaving that to Congress, although the attorney general sort of swooped in and took responsibility for making you know, a call about whether or not it was a crime, and he said it was not. But this idea that there's disappointment because Bob Mueller didn't do that which the American people themselves failed to do is not quite right. But it sounds to me like you think that Mueller may not have gone far enough on aspects. No, no, I, no I, 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 I trust and respect Bob Mueller as much as anyone. And so I think he did a thorough job. And just as with the questions that I get asked about cases that weren't brought and quote unquote got away, 
Uh, I, tr- I trust that he was as thorough as I know him to be from the past, having worked with him uh, in a number of capacities, and that it is what it is, and people should accept it. And you, don't you don't think like, the scoreline will be seen as Trump won, Mueller? Not talk, quite won. People talk about it that way, but that's you know, it's not it's not quite. The, you know, if someone is charged in court and they get convicted, you don't say that, you know the government won, defendant zero. It's a crass way of thinking about it. Or if the reverse happens, you don't think about it that way. You think overall, as long as everyone was fair, and as long as people had access to the right materials, and people applied the law properly, then you know, a certain rough justice was done, whether you like it or not. You know, there are times where we disagree in in court with the verdict of the jury, and they find someone not guilty when we thought they were guilty. Otherwise, we wouldn't have brought the case. And we think, you know, that's not great. It was not a good result. But you accept the process. You respect the process. And the U.S. attorney in those cases, I would say, you know, I'm a little disappointed. Um, but we respect the verdict of the jury, and you move on. And justice was done because the process, of, as long as the process went fairly and there was no thumb on the scale, then you move on. And that's sort of how I feel about Mueller. How much of the report do you think we should see? As much as, as possible. Public. Almost. Look, th- there are legitimate reasons why certain parts of the report may have to be kept back or only showed to, shown to Congress if you have very delicate classified information or there's information about ongoing investigations. Uh, what I'm worried about is that some of those potentially hypothetical legitimate bases are being used as pretexts to insulate the president from bad publicity or from bad findings. And, you know, I'm not accusing anyone of that, but you get that feeling a little bit when you see how political uh, all the statements have been about Bob Mueller and the 13 angry Democrats and and the way in which Trump has tried to undermine and denigrate and criticize that investigation from the beginning, which now he doesn't feel as terrible about. <laughs> so it's... It, you know, it all smacks of outcome-determinative thinking, which I think is unfortunate. There's a snappy phrase, <laughs> possibly because of that. But anyway, I think there was, the limelight was shifting a bit to ongoing Southern District New York cases involving Trump. What should the public be looking for there? Well, the public should read my book. <laughs> all the public <laughs> and, should and read they, your book. Well, I, I'd but, say that as a given. But for this, but, but, but I was just not, it was not just a mindless plug for the book. I ran that place for seven and a half years, and so... You know, it's largely about these people that, whose names you may not know and whose faces you may not recognize who did case after case after case, like John O'Malley. And what I can say about them is they're fearless, they're independent, they're fair-minded, they're tough, they're strong. That has been the tradition of that office long before I got there and will be long after I'm gone. And it'd be useful to think about how they decide cases and how they deliberate. And if the president has done things wrong and has committed crimes... Well, then, yeah, he should be concerned. He knows what he did. And if he did those things, he should be concerned. At is the same he above time, the law? Is Donald Trump above the law? Well, it's a complicated question because we like to say the president is not above the law. And we like to say the law applies to everyone. There are certain ways in which the president gets special treatment. He gets special treatment. Uh, and maybe this is right. Maybe this is wrong. He gets special treatment in part because there's a document in the Justice Department that says the sitting president can't be prosecuted or indicted while in office. Um, there are certain issues relating to security clearances and uh, and 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 ethical financial um, but is, requirements. But is he potentially more a, above the law than any other president? That would be the question. Isn't it? I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, the president. This president has said uniquely, uh, in a form of hyperbole, which is maybe not as hyperbolic as it sounds. He says, "I could shoot a person on Fifth Avenue in New York, and not lose a single vote." So it may be the case if this is the, how you meant the question, that he has such a core of support, doesn't get you know above 50%, that 
people will forgive virtually anything. They'll forgive credible allegations of sexual misconduct. They'll forgive credible allegations of campaign finance fraud, credible allegations of being somehow compromised by Russia. Uh, And it sort of doesn't matter. That's, you know, for the public to decide. There's There's a totally different system by which either through a special counsel or a prosecutor's office, those people decide in their discretion whether a crime has or has not been committed. And I suppose that's the context of, of what you're writing about. It's how much is the law changed, altered, eroded if a society as a whole puts less of a value on truth and expertise? Yeah, I, I think we have to be vigilant about that. Perfect laws are not enough. You need to have people who you know, care about the rule of law, care about fairness, care about eliminating bias, and whose judgments on things and on the truth of things doesn't vary with which side it helps. If you could implement one change that would advance justice in the US, what would you advocate for that you think would have the greatest beneficial impact? That is a far too difficult question. Uh, You have had some difficult questions before. No, but I I don't think I can pick one thing. I think, you know, there are a range of things that can be done to get more people who are without means access to good quality lawyering, access to justice. Um, the Constitution, as interpreted now in the United States, but not from the beginning, was that anybody accused of a crime has a right uh, to counsel, but often that counsel is not, you know, on the ball. <laughs> and lots of death penalty litigation, because we still have the death penalty here, uh, revolves around the quality and the sufficiency of the counsel that was received at the trial phase. Um, I also think, and, and again, this is not a simple thing, that there should be a lot more civic education and understanding of the Constitution. I mean, I try to do some of that on my podcast on Stay Tuned. And I think part of its success is because people are really thoughtful and want to learn about how democracy works, how the law works, how the courts work. Some of that is fueled by being bombarded every day with legal stories about the sitting president of the United States. But I think even in other less volatile times, it's important for people in whatever democracy they live. And actually, maybe more important, Mm. if you don't live in a democracy, to understand how democracies can work, how they can flourish, how they can fade, uh, what propaganda is. And I think public education efforts and access to justice are two of the things that would make us better. Putting aside public education, what legal drama would you put your feet up and watch? Uh, You know, I I don't watch a lot of legal dramas anymore. I watch a lot of mob films. It's interesting that people who do mob prosecutions, mafia prosecutions tend to like mafia movies where the mafia is often, uh, you know, favored and made to look sympathetic and you tend to root for them. You know, among my favorite movies are Goodfellas and The Godfather uh, and and, and The Departed, a lot of Scorsese there. Uh, So I, I put my feet up and watch a good mob movie, but I know who the good guys are, even if it's not always clear in the movies. Preet Bharara, thank you very thank much you for, for joining us. Me. Thank you. And we'd like to hear what you think is the law effective in America or what needs to change. Write to us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And why not subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Anne McElvoy and in New York, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.